Let's now turn to the Holy Scriptures, to Luke chapter 2, another of the nativity narratives and another of the Christmas carols are in view this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of, Mo of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, made under the law. Jesus came, and in His coming, He came in full accord with every jot and every tittle, with all those things that had been said about Him and pictured concerning Him and typified about Him in the law of Moses. When Jesus came, he fulfilled every bit of that. And part of that fulfillment was the order of his birth and the rituals that took place. We already know that Mary was a faithful young woman to the Lord and to his promises and that Joseph was an upright man and a godly man. And they fulfilled everything that they needed to to be a good, obedient Israelite in their day. And one of those things was the purification ritual. Now Jesus was born, circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses. And this particular episode that we read about here is the purification ceremony to indicate Mary's time. If a male child was born, a woman uh, had to abstain and completely be purified for 33 days. If it was a female, it was 66 days. I'm not, I have no idea why that is exactly, but, but if 33 days had to pass in her purification. And then when that time was up, she was to appear in the temple before the priest and there 
a ritual was performed for her purification. And this is what's happening here. It says that in the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses. And if you want to read the particulars of that, it's spelled out in Leviticus chapter 12. You can go back in that entire chapter of Leviticus 12, talks about the circumcision ritual and the purification ritual and everything that goes with it. So they came up for that particular ceremony and came to the temple. Now they weren't too far from Jerusalem in Bethlehem and we don't know where they stayed during the interim month from the birth until the time of purification, but they made it a point to go to the temple for that ceremony. Interesting thing about it all was it says that they came and the offering that they brought, the offering that they brought was um, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And uh, the, the account here in Luke just says they, they brought that type of offering. What you know from reading the book of Leviticus is that that was the offering of the very poor in Israel. The very poor in Israel would bring the offering of the fowl. The, the offering of the, of the larger animals was for the more wealthy. And so it's an indication, some indication, uh, one more indication of the humility of the circumstance of the birth of Jesus. When Jesus came, he came humble in every way. Humble not only before the Lord, but having given up all of his riches and glory, but humble before mankind. And the, the, the uh, carol that we look at this morning is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And that is, of course, one of the themes we had last week when we looked at Come, O Come, Emmanuel, was that the long period of time between the promises that God made to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, the promises that God made in the covenant that God made with, with David 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, and all the manifold promises that are given in the prophets, starting principally with Isaiah, who has the most recorded prophets of any of the writing prophets, 700 plus years before the actual birth of Christ. Long period of time, long expect, expected, waiting and waiting and waiting. And there was a class and category of people who were honored all throughout Israel's history because they were the ones that were longing and waiting for the Lord. In fact, the last prophet, Malachi, pronounces a blessing upon those who be, remain faithful to the law of Moses and wait and wait and wait and expect and long for the coming of the Christ. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me that from a human standpoint, a period of several centuries like that would test the patience and the faith and the faithfulness of almost any believer. But the Bible tends to indicate, and we know that there was always a remnant in Israel. There was always a group of people that were fanatical and that were faithful and were waiting. No matter what happened, the Babylonian captivity and all that happened, they continued to believe God and wait on God's promises. All of the things that happened in the interim period between Malachi and Matthew, that long 400 or so period of time when there were conquerings by uh, other foreign nations, the desecration of the temple, the uh, rejuvenation of the nation and to some extent under the Maccabean period, and then of course the conquest by Rome in the first century BC. All of, they continued to wait. 
They would sing in their hearts, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And this man that's introduced here, Simeon, is one of those men who was noted in Scripture for his waiting. Listen to how he is described. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Men are noted and women are noted throughout the pages of history for their working. Who's noted for their waiting? What does it mean to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall not be confounded. They that wait upon the Lord shall not be ashamed. The Bible says over and over, there is a, there's a theology of waiting. There is a believing activity known as waiting, and it involves faith, it involves patience and trust. And I think it involves a shift of worldview, because all worldviews always concentrate seemingly on the now. And a believing worldview is well aware of the now, and should be well aware of the before. But the believing worldview has a strong, strong emphasis on the yet to come. That's where we need to be too, even in our place in holy history where we are now in the inter-advent period, the time between the first advent and the second advent. We're between these advents and we are to be waiting. And it's not because we are just out of other things to do and just sort of giving up. What else can we do? Let's just wait. What else can we do? Let's just hope. These are not weak and feeble and feckless activities of the believer. This is the essence of our faith. The Lord is our God. We will wait for Him, said the psalmist. So that's what Simeon is doing. Simeon is one of those men one of those people, and we're introduced, uh, we don't have it in our text today, but there's a, a lady by the name of Hannah, and she has that same uh, basic profile, waiting on the Lord. Our patience runs out pretty quickly, doesn't it? Our perspective is pretty truncated, isn't it? But waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord in our youth, and waiting on the Lord in our old age. There's an indication that these two people, Simeon and Anna, were elderly people, very much ripe in age. In fact, the, uh, the age of Anna's given. She was a octogenarian. She was in her 80s, waiting on the Lord. Now, if we're not careful, we'll read right past this real quickly and we'll say, well, this, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. But what do we know about him? Well, not much. What can we speculate about him? A whole lot. <laughs> we certainly can speculate. I think it's good, good speculation. For one thing, he might have been, although we don't know this, the text doesn't say it, he might have been the officiating priest at the ceremony. He might have been one of those men 
who had continued in the ironic priesthood over the years and continued to serve the Lord through thick and thin under all kinds of circumstances, continued to offer those sacrifices, each and every one of them somehow a glimpse, a picture of the coming Christ and had performed and served those rituals. We know Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was one of those men. Simeon may have been one of those men that served faithfully in the temple, which gave the pictures and the types and all of the images that all pointed to some aspect of the person and work of the coming Christ. And while he worked amongst the temple ceremonies, he continued to believe in their reality. Seeing the turtle doves and the lambs, he nevertheless was mindful of the Christ. And he longed and he waited. It says he was longing are waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is the comfort of Israel. It's the vindication of Israel. It's the salvation of Israel. It's the time when God keeps his promises and visits his people. And he held on to those promises and was continually waiting and waiting, holding out. Now, men have been tested this way. Noah was tested this way. How many years did Noah preach before a raindrop fell? How long did Abraham go before little Isaac was born? God puts us in those circumstances because he wants us to believe and hold to him and to his promises. One of the interesting things it says about him, he says he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's enough to put on my tombstone. <laughs> if you put that on my tombstone, I'll be gratified. That'll be enough good said about me. But here may be the best thing ever said about him. It says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. God the Spirit had been at work since creation morning, and he had been working in God's people, inspiring scripture, empowering prophets, motivating and empowering kings, moving Israel, revealing the law, one thing after another. The Spirit of God was at work. And here now we'll see as we come to the time of fulfillment, a revival of the activity of the Spirit of God. Luke especially points it out, not only in the book of Luke, but in his second volume, the book of Acts. It's all about the acts of the Holy Spirit. And notice the things that happened. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And notice the very next verse in the text, 27. He came in the Spirit into the temple. The Spirit was upon him. The Spirit spoke to him, motivated him, moved him. And the Spirit actually led him. What more can you say about an upright, godly man than he was led by the Spirit of God? The same Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness following the baptism is the Spirit that had led Simeon to his activities that day in the temple. There's something else we could speculate about him, and I love to speculate, and I love to sort of see what's going on, but the language here that he quotes is interesting language. It is reminiscent of several passages out of the um, Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah. 
There's about a half a dozen passages that are alluded to or quoted, and most of them are the servant songs. And in our Advent, was it last year or the year before, we went through the, some of the servant songs in our Advent series. But, but listen to two passages that, that, that move forward to this particular um, uh, hymn that he sings or this a declaration that he makes here as he begins in verse 28. He took the babe up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. By the way, this is the promise that the Lord gave Abraham. He said, you'll be able to depart in peace and you'll rest with your fathers. And in the fourth generation, they'll return to the land. In other words, this is, this is the, the, the reward given to the godly person. And he says, according to your word. And then in verses 30 and to through uh, in 32, there are several phrases that call us, and we hear echoes of these Old Testament promises kind of, of uh, summarized. Listen to the psalmist. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has worked salvation for him. He has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And then as I mentioned, there's several in the book of Isaiah, but here's the one I want to look at this morning. Isaiah 52. The voice of your watchman That's who Simeon was. He was a watchman. There wasn't Israel prophets. There were priests. There were princes. But there was an informal, non-ordained order of men and women. And they're called on several times in the Old Testament. They are, they may be a priest, it may be a prophet, but they were designated as watchmen. And they were to read the signs of the times and to read what was going on in the people and to read what God was doing and to understand what God was doing. A watchman is someone that is on post, that is alert, whose eyes are wide open and is able to say, that's who Simeon was. And there had been watchmen, his generation before and the generation before and the generation before. Israel never found itself without a faithful watchman. And that's Simeon. He is that watchman. Listen to what the watchman is to do. Lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. This is seeing it with the eye of faith. But then Simeon had been given the promise that he would see it with his Optic nerve. He would see the Christ. And when he held that baby Jesus in his arms, the Spirit revealed to him, this is that child. What child is this? This is that Holy One that had been promised. Break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem. Why is it always music and singing that goes along with the coming of Christ? Why is the nativity from the angels forward a time of great joy and a great singing? 
is because that's the way God has put it together. For the Lord has comforted his people. That's the word consolation of Israel that we read in our text. He has redeemed Israel. He has bared his holy arm. It's interesting whenever it talks about in the Bible, God doing something, it talks about him rolling up his sleeves and bearing his right arm and getting it done. And when it was finally done, where did Jesus sit down? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty when it was finished and it was accomplished. That's, that's God's getting his work done and doing it effectively and doing it eternally and finally in everything he did. And that's what Jesus came to do was to be the right arm of the Father. The Lord has bared his holy right arm before the eyes of the Gentiles and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This particular passage is known uh, in the Latin as the Nuke Dimittis. In fact, all of those songs there in uh, the Magnificant of Mary, the Benedictus of, of uh, Zacharias, these are songs that are in poetic form that are uh, spoken by various characters in the Nativity narrative. And we get their names from the Latin. It's the very first or Latin word or two that's in the text. And just for the fun of it, <laughs> because it is fun. I pulled my old Vulgate off the shelf. It's dusty. I don't study the Latin too much. Um, I studied Latin back in the day, but I have not kept up with it. And of course, we always favor the Greek because the, that's the language of the inspiration of Scripture and the Hebrew in the Old Testament. But the Latin, the Latin was interesting because it's translated by St. Jerome and it is the Greek and Hebrew. And of course, Jerome was the finest, most accomplished scholar of his day that we know about, devoted his life to it. And he translated the scriptures, old and new, into the Latin. And so I was struggling through there to kind of read some words and see what I could recognize and see what it looked like in the Latin text. And I came upon an interesting, it just jumped out at me. The word that's used, as we see in the very end of this passage, where he says, it says that he took the babe in his arms and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. The word in the Latin for fall is ruin. And the word in the Latin for rising is resurrection. What better summary of the work of Christ than the ruin and the resurrection, the fall and the rising? Jesus is that one person in human history that one being from all eternity who will be your ruin or your resurrection. Which is he to you this morning? Is he your ruin? Is he your judge? Is he the one by trampling underfoot his precious blood and ignoring him and walking away from him and not coming to him as he invites you to come and believing and trusting him? For your salvation, will that be your ruin? 
by rejecting the cornerstone? What do you think of Christ? How do you relate to Christ? If you don't relate to Him the way He calls you to, it's your ruin. You have no hope beyond the grave. No hope beyond Him. It's your ruin. He's the gate. He's the pivot. He's the way. You're with Him and you're on Him. And in Him is resurrection. Not ruin. Resurrection. New life. New birth. Eternal life. That's who Christ is. He's either your ruin or your resurrection. And this is just what Simeon really wanted to say when he says in that very last phrase, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As the light of the gospel message shines on your heart this morning, what is it revealing? Hearts are exposed. Hearts are laid bare. Dark hearts are opened with the light of the gospel. Is Christ your ruin or is He your resurrection?